Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, introducing this week's episode, or this Monday's episode, of Robinson's podcast, number 19. My guest is Nick Huggett, who's a philosopher of physics and science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Before that, he studied philosophy and physics at Oxford and then Rutgers. We get into how Nick became interested in physics and philosophy, and then from there we go straight into the meat of the episode, which is Zeno of Alea and his paradoxes of composition and motion. And those paradoxes are actually some of the first puzzles that got me interested in philosophy, particularly the paradoxes of motion. Because even if you're not a trained philosopher or a trained physicist, they really grab your attention as being problematic. I think Nick did a particularly phenomenal job in this episode accommodating me because I know vanishingly little physics. And so he had to contend with my uh, very naive questions, as I'll put it. So I, I really appreciate him giving me his time and also explaining things with the simplicity that I needed to hear. So for instance, we talked a bit about string theory and quantum gravity, which as you can imagine, not being a physicist, are very foreign from just daily intuitions and also require a lot of technical expertise. And I asked a lot of questions that I think were difficult to grapple with just because they didn't make sense to him within the conceptual framework of physics. But like I said, I really appreciate that he uh, didn't just stop talking to me or something because I was frustrating. So I really enjoyed this episode. I got a lot out of it and I hope you enjoy it as well. There are definitely more philosophy of physics episodes to come because it's just something that has really been grabbing my attention lately, even though it's not something that I'm studying. And I guess I, I do wonder how much I can learn without devoting time to the study of physics itself. But I, I, I'm still hoping that I can get a general understanding of the lay of the land. And as these episodes come out, as I conduct the interviews, hopefully through me, you'll also be able to get some sort of understanding of what it is that a philosopher of physics is researching. So I hope that you enjoy the episode and let me know what you think. How did you get into physics in the first place? Yeah, I think it was just a subject. I just always enjoyed the science subjects. Um, and in the UK, you s sort of specialize much earlier than in, in the, the US. So mm -hmm. in the last two years of high school, where you take the, the A-levels, the final, the, the final exams, um, from high school, you pick three or four subjects. It's, 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 I mean, that is the norm. 
um, and they tend to sort of track you either into sciences or humanities. So I, the things I was best at and uh, enjoyed doing was, uh, well, physics and mathematics, and then I added chemistry, which I didn't enjoy as much and wasn't as good at. But uh, yeah, so that's how I ended up doing that. So it was always something I enjoyed a lot. Um, and that's kind of how I developed the sort of physics speciality. Did philosophy come later, or that was always part of it? Yeah. So, you know, uh, 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 as in the States, there's, when you're, you're, there's the main courses you're taking, but um, you'd also take um, you know, various electives. And I guess I did find I was taking electives that were more on the philosophical side. Um, and I also sort of found I was just getting a little frustrated with only doing um, science subjects. So I was... When I... When I was thinking about going to university, also you specialize, you know, at university level, um, everyone applies to do it, read a particular subject at university. It's not mm -hmm. something you kind of figure out when you get there, which is much more common or the norm for people in the US. Um, so, you know, I kind of, you know, knew I should be doing physics because that's, that was really what I you know, wanted to do and enjoyed doing, but I also felt that that wasn't um, it wasn't enough, so I was pretty happy when I discovered that you could do um, philosophy of physics. So, um, yeah, so that that's, was how I ended up doing that. So, Is that what you studied at Oxford, philosophy of physics? Yeah, so they have a joint degree. Okay, so I think they're, pretty, they're very strong in that area, right? Yeah. Their department. So um, That must have been a nice place to be. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty different. Um, now they have sort of half a dozen faculty teaching philosophy of physics oh, wow. um there was really just one person at the time who they just hired who was teaching it um and in that degree program in the whole university there were only three of us in my year that were doing that out of whatever several thousand you know a mm -hmm. few thousand people uh it's much much bigger now many more people people take it mm -hmm. i think uh, you know a lot of the people who work in philosophy of physics, I mean, I think this, this was also part of my motivation for, we're well, not just starting, but then sort of sticking with the subject. And what I really liked about the subject was, you know, there's a certain kind of person who takes physics classes and starts to kind of ask more why questions than most physicists. You know, why, you know, you're, you're taught the material and I think people who become very good, who become good physicists, um, often, you know, they pick up the lessons and learn how to do the physics really quickly. But there's another kind of person who's, you know, I think good at the physics, but also wants to know a bit more about why we do this thing rather than that thing. Mm -hmm. um, and starts to ask the kind of questions that lead to philosophy of physics and other kinds of questions ultimately. Plus, right. was a physics ask, and I guess I found I was one of those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Columbia has David Albert, yeah. who I unfortunately never got to take a course with because uh -huh. I was always working on more logicy things. Right. But uh, and then at Stanford has Thomas Reichman, who hopefully I'll be able to ah right yes, do course. some studying with as well. But I in high school sort of went the opposite route, which I rue now in that I started getting interested in philosophy and only later have gravitated towards 
uh, more technical areas in the field. I wish I had that science background from back then. But when I was in high school, one of the first philosophers who whose work spoke to me, though I wasn't, I didn't know much about it. I just one of my teachers told me about it was Zeno of Alea, who I was hoping to mm-hmm. talk to you about today, because his paradoxes. Uh, they're very easy to grasp, even for somebody who isn't philosophically trained. So, first off, why is somebody who was doing physics or primitive physics like 2,500, 2,000 years ago relevant to us now? Yeah. Um, so, I don't know that I would say, it depends who the we are, whether he has things to tell us about uh, you know to tell physicists today I think is more questionable Um, I mean I regularly get emails from people who think he does um, but I think many of the sort of main problems that he uh, he um, raises were solved in the the, in the latter part of the the uh, 19th century so with the proper um, foundations given to analysis, um, the theory of real numbers, and the foundations of the calculus, I would say solve a lot of the problems that, that he, he raises. Because, I mean, jumping a bit ahead, they have to do with the continuum, right. roughly. Okay. Yeah. Understanding the infinitesimal. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was excited to see because I'm working on infinitesimals right now, that one of his antinomies, that of, sorry, that of there being large and small uh, revolves around infinitesimals on some level. But so what is the earliest physics that we really know of? Yeah, well, it depends what you mean by physics, which I guess is a question you asked me <laughs> in earlier, our first episode. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, and, and maybe the, the uh, answer I give will be uh, uh, compatible with what I said then. So it really depends. So, you know, as I think I probably did say then, if you really think about, um, you know, physics in the modern sense as, you know, application of you know rigorous careful rig, um, empirical methods and um, application of you know mathematics in a careful way then I mean really that 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 the sort of systematically starts in the in the 17th century in particular with Newton and various other physicists at, you know people mm-hmm. at that time so in sort of in the modern sense um, but kind of working backwards I mean people started you know in the medieval period people started to figure out how to there were mathematical developments um, uh, then that people used to start to do something along those along those lines um, I mean I should say my knowledge here is you know largely in the sort of Western tradition so I know you know in in the Arabic world um, in India there was also uh, work done that people might you, know, you might count as physics that I know a lot less about. Um, you know, working backwards to um, you know then to the, the to antiquity. So you think about you know 
of course, the key question people were interested in then that sort of looks like physics and is really the sort of origin of physics is the problem of the planets. Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, people, you, if you look at the sky at night, I mean, it's... it's it, it's what you see if you look, you know, over the night, you see this fixed canopy of stars that's apparently mm. rotating around the Earth. Um, and of course, during the day, you can follow the moon and the, the sun, you know, also rotating around the Earth, apparently, once, you know, every 24 hours. Um, you also notice that day to day, they change, you know, with the years, exactly what the stars, you know, which stars, you know, rise first. Um, Know exactly which ones are overhead that changes over year as the earth as we now know moves around the sun um, and moreover you know that of course is fairly straightforward to um, predict uh, very quickly though the problem of the planets then is sort of coming to but grips. that's the bit I'm coming to oh, okay well then go ahead <laughs> right so that's fairly straightforward I mean you sort of have a 24 hour period and then on top of that you have a 365 and a quarter day period and you know it, it, but when you see that and you can draw a map of where the stars are you know that's sort of that's regular in a way that's not so hard to kind of predict how things are going to be from year to year and predict the seasons and of course you know this had important implications for agriculture important implications um, for for religion so there's a kind of that you know that's empirical that's you know mathematical in a sense and so but what you also notice of course is that some of those stars actually don't stay in a fixed position in the sky from day to day or relative to it, all the other stars they in fact move relative to the stars um, whilst moving daily and moving annually but it's like you have a star that sort of from day to day is in a slightly different position relative to everything else and those people called the Greeks called the wanderers or the planets as we oh really talk the now. wanderers that's a nice so that, name that so that's um, and the Sun and the moon of course a wander in that sense as mm -hmm. well if you if you now think about them and there's also objects sort of in the sky they don't stay in a fixed place relative to uh, the fixed stars either so they're in, you know in the, in the Greek sense of the word they are also planets uh, and the earth isn't because that's at the center of the universe so that's the problem of the planets is to give the laws that describe how the how the the wanderers move actually wander through the sky um, and over time and that's sort of the birth of physics because it is you know it is something that's sort of mathematical that you need to the way you're going to describe it so you, you know you can make sort of you can make predictions but it also happens very slowly and people were watching the skies you know for hundreds thousands of years and so co collected what amounted to very sort of accurate data about how the planets move you know if you make a prediction you know people are going to be applying that prediction for the next 100 200 years and if your prediction is wrong that will eventually become apparent and people will, you will try to make a, a better prediction so that's sort of the origin the Babylonians you know well before the you know sort of before the Greeks um, back into antiquity people had 
you know, tried to have theories of these of this um, in the Greek um, period. So I think Eudoxus is one of the people who um, tried to sort of solve this problem. Uh, hmm. Has a story about, you know, and then Aristotle has a story about how this happens. And I mean, of course, that's indeed the problem that uh, Newton wanted to solve and did solve with universal gravitation. So. You know, that's the sort of origin of, I would say, of physics. Um, Aristotle has a book called The Physics, which sort of deals not quantitatively, but sort of qualitatively with how that story is supposed to work, but also interested in other kind of issues. For instance, um, you know, the, what the elements are, what gravity is, what's the difference between light things and heavy things, um, issues like that. Did the Greeks realize that what they called the wanderers were planets, or did they think that they were just stars? Because I can imagine, without all of the technology we had, looking up, seeing some that were fixed, some that were moving, that would raise serious existential questions about their place in all of this. So, you know, so the kind of standard picture was a picture of sort of nested spheres. So on the out, the fixed stars you would think were thought of as being you know, points of light, sort of con uh, fixed to a, um, an outer sphere that's kind of rotate the Earth in the middle. That's rotating around once a day, you know, once once a year. Okay, and then it has the sort of annual motion as well. That's like that, uh, uh, to explain the difference from day to day rather than during that each day. And then within that, there would be a series of other nested spheres, each one with a one of the wanderers attached, you know, attached to to that sphere, something like that. But they were they were just points of light to them. They weren't necessarily. Planets. So that's a good question. So there's nothing sort of fundamentally different between the stars and the wanderers in that picture. They're okay. just on different on different stars on different. So there is okay. Of course, the question comes up of um, why you know what causes them to produce this light um, you know it's pretty clear that uh, the moon for instance is reflecting the sun's light because we have eclipses and you can see it's the earth's shadow being mm -hmm. cast on, on the sun on the moon um, incidentally that also makes clear and was well known to the to the Greeks that the earth is round because of the shadow that it is always a a part of a circle oh, you see cast you hmm. never sort of see the sun casting a, sh a shadow as if it was on edge or anything yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's really huh. clear um, so yeah anyway so um, yeah so I think um, I think so if I remember this right I think it was kind of a puzzle about exactly uh, why the planets you know why, why the why the stars um, uh, glow um, I think Aristotle had one suggestion that it might be friction as these, as the as they move across against each other. Um, so, and of course, this was a question that wasn't really uh, was not answered until the discovery of quantum mechanics and nuclear fusion. Mm -hmm. So, right. sometime in the you know mid early to mid part of the twentieth century, that we came to actually understand how how stars could be producing the amount of light they mm -hmm. they they were um but that but at least the aristotelian picture of the universe everything so we have the earth 
that's made of earth, the element earth, and there's water that are there as well. Um, the, other, the, the other two terrestrial elements are the air um, and fire. So obviously the air, the air is sort of the atmosphere and you needed fire to understand how things could be light because you see flames sort of shooting up into the air. Um, but everything outside um, the terrestrial realm, so basically once you get to the moon and beyond, is made of uh, a special element for the heavens, um, the, 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 the ether. Hmm. So back to Zeno now, who, if I'm not really mistaken, is best sort of known today through Aristotle and Plato and then because of his relation to Parmenides. But where does he sort of fit into this early picture of physics and with his paradoxes? So I think one of the things I, I one of the things um, I like about Aristotle's sort of understanding of physics sort of conceptually um, was his understanding that that motion and change is the sort of is the key. So he's very interested in change in general and um, locomotion, you know, motion through, you know, of objects in space in particular. So, and Zeno in many ways kind of challenges that. I mean, Zeno also challenges our sort of understanding of how, of, of, of composition, how finite objects could in some sense be composed of in, infin, infinitely small objects. Um, I see this, you know, these questions as challenges for the mathematics one kind of assumes or would use to sort of talk about these things. Um, and I think Zeno sort of successfully points out that, I mean, it's a kind of anachronistic way of putting it, but effectively what, what he... Um, successfully points out is limitations in the kind of mathematical uh, tools that they had to actually talk about these things. And that that I would gather is primarily with regard to his paradoxes of motion rather than those of size or maybe I'm Well mistaken. I meant that I was bringing in composition as well to okay. mean, mean that yeah also. So something something that I found interesting as I was looking into this, was the etymology of paradox. So paradox comes from the Greek para, which is against, and doxa, which is belief. So it's really just taking, I guess, premises that we might agree with and then coming up with a conclusion that is contradictory to our in intuitions or how we view the world. And as I was reading about his paradoxes, that seemed to be exactly what was happening. I mean, I found myself agreeing with the premises as he laid them out as put by Plato or Aristotle, uh, and then finding that the conclusions were utterly sort of foreign to my experience of the world. So I'd love to talk more about these paradoxes yeah, yeah, yeah. in particular. It, would you, are there ones that you would want to start with, the motion or uh, composition? Yeah, we can talk about a couple of them. Um, yeah, no, that sounds good. Yeah, no, that's a nice point. I like, I like the etymology, the point of etymology about 
paradox. Mm. I mean, I'll say in our sort of modern, that's kind of a nice way of putting it. Um, you know, I think in sort of contemporary use, people mean a lot of different things yeah. by, by I think paradox. I it's just contradiction. Yeah, um, that's one use, but I think people will also will use will use the term even to just mean sort of surprising or kind of unbelievable conclusion, rather than literal contradiction and a range of sort of things that can happen, mm -hmm. sort of in between. So, yeah, from sort of unbelievable to clearly false or something to contradiction. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's worth kind of bearing that in mind. That yeah, that we're, we're taking our about. beliefs and then we but are... that's a nice general way yeah, of putting it. Against them. Yeah, yeah. So which of the paradoxes would you like to start with? So... There, there's one that I don't really understand. Maybe we could start sure, with that one. Sure. So the paradox that there are not many things. That, so it seems like a sort of uh, very... Well, was Parmenides a monist? I think that would be the technical term for it. Uh, somebody who only believes that there's one thing. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, that seems completely contradictory to our intuitions about the world. I mean, here you are, here I am, here my cat is. There, there have to be more than one things. But I... I actually heard recently on a podcast that might have been with Sean Carroll. I, you're familiar mm -hmm. with Sean Carroll, right? His Mindscape podcast. I'm I'm not recalling the professor's name, but he's at Rutgers, and he is a monist today. So it's not at all a, oh, a yeah, yeah. dead belief. Uh, dead belief. He just thinks that there is the universe and there is nothing else. But it's kind of it seems to me to be sort of twisting right, the words right, of right, right. but anyway so well, the first paradox that is in the SAP article is called I think the the antinomy of the many but it's the idea that there is only one thing because if we suppose that there are many things it leads to contradiction so what is the paradox of the many and why would it lead us to suppose that there's only one thing which just seems to run entirely contrary to the way that we view the world. Yeah, right. So I think there's a number of considerations that appear here. Um, so I think if I remember right the best correctly, the best form, you know, the general form of the argument is if there aren't, you know, assuming there's something, I think we're putting aside the idea that there's possibility that there's nothing. So if there's, but if there's, the, there's either one thing, or some finite number of things greater than one, or some infinite number of things, okay, those are sort of the options that are on the table. Um, and if I remember the argument correctly, first of all we say, well, suppose there are finitely many greater than one number of things. Um, Zeno seems to have the idea we're imagining them in space, so that we could actually distinguish the things. So he's sort of imagining. Maybe something like a like a you know an object, and is it composed of more than one thing? Well, if there are two parts, he thinks there has to be something in between them to distinguish them. So there couldn't just be two; they'd have to be three. But they couldn't just. But then to distinguish the um, the object into three parts, there'd have to be a part between the first and the third, and between the uh, between the first and the second, and the second and the third. Mm -hmm. And so there are five things, and but it they couldn't be five without infinite. right, right, right. So we keep going, and um, there'd have to be infinitely many things. So 
Uh, I'm not saying that's a great argument. It, it involves some strange assumptions, I would say, but that's that's the argument that, that he gives against there being finitely many things. That's okay, so maybe this object is made of infinitely many things, um, but now you have to think about, uh, you know, I think Zeno, here it's less clear what Zeno has in mind, but looking at some of the other arguments, the kind of thing he would then uh, worry about is, well, look, okay, so I've got my object, you know, this table, you know, uh, I've got an object. How many part? You know, how many parts is it made of? Um, I mean, I guess the object is the universe, really. If we're thinking about this kind of monism, um, how many parts is it made of? And so, just think about you know, an object la laid out in a line. If they are zero in length, Zeno thinks, then well, add up as many zeros as you like. You still have zero, so it's it's going to be nothing. I'm not going. I'm going to be back to nothing. So that can't be the way it is. Um, the alternative to them being zero in length is that they have some sort of finite length, but an infinite, an infinity of um, finite quantities. He thinks um, is infinitely big. But mm -hmm. so that you know, the only way to have infinitely many things is to have an infinite universe or every objects to be um, infinite. And I think he wants to reject that. So by the lights of I mean, I think there's a number of kind of questionable assumptions, uh, questionable from the point of view of sort of physical composition, but sort of particularly questionable from the assumption of uh, that mathematics as well. Right. Um, although, as I said before, these things weren't properly understood or, I mean, they were sort of intuitively understood, but they weren't kind of rig put on a rigorous footing until the 19th century where people really understood how, I mean, how to say these things in a way that they really knew was on solid mathematical grounds and not just sort of intuitive ideas about how numbers are, mm -hmm. but actual work by sort of people like Cauchy and Weierstrass that, um, you know, developed this, the calculus that we have now. Um, mm -hmm. So we actually have a, a, a formal, well-defined theory of how to um, how to how to how to handle infinitesimals, mm -hmm. uh, which banishes infinitesimals, but right. loosely speaking. So you know, for instance, you know, one of the assumptions was, um, and this will come up in sort of may come up in some of the paradoxes of motion. Well, whenever you add up an infinity of finite numbers, you, the answer is infinity. Um, and that's just wrong according to you know the the calculus right so there's that i think the other assumption was and and this is a sort of more sort of a little more sticky one that um an infinity of zeros is always zero so adding up is not really it, so that's developed then in the uh yeah in in the theory of real numbers in analysis, right? So you sort of think about um, a segment of the real numbers, say from zero to one. In the theory of analysis, there are an infinity of uh, points in mm -hmm. that line, an infinity of numbers between those two, including you know, and including those. So you know, each one of which uh, is according to sort of theory of length that we um, apply to the real numbers. Uh, measure theory. Exactly, measure theory in the standard measure. Each one of those indeed has length zero, 
but I mean there's two things to know first of all there's more points in the line than there are numbers in the sequence one two three four right right it's uncountably infinite it's uncountably infinite so there's more than there are natural numbers so it seems addition doesn't even make sense because addition always involves taking adding two numbers and then a third and then a fourth and then a fifth so addition is a notion that's only defined when we have countably many numbers right so of course instead we have the integral um, and the standard measure on on the real numbers and then that gives us an account of how all the points have you know according to the within that theory all the points have zero length but that part of the line has length one mm-hmm. so that i mean this sort of important I, I think the important sort of philosophical and kind of conceptual issues here then are insofar as you know zeno is challenging the sort of mathematical representation of, of matter of, of the universe we do now have met that challenge insofar as there is a mathematic, you know, a mathematical theory of how we can have the inf- infinite divisibility and zero length parts and of adding up to constituting, um, in that sense, uh, a finite length. Of course, the remaining question is the applicability of that mathematics to the world. Is that actually the right structure for thinking about the world mm-hmm. so you know we probably won't actually get to talk about quantum gravity <laughs> one of the things that seems quite possible in that theory is that there is a smallest distance so yeah you know, uh, well the Planck length two, maybe 10 we to will... the 32 minus 32 meters and so actually we're we uh, actually we shouldn't be you know at the fundamental level the calculus doesn't apply and we have finite numbers of things sort of adding up, but we take them to be distinguished. You know, right. We're rejecting other premises. We deny that to, you know, we think, you know, we deny that to be distinct, there has to be a third thing between any two things. There's that questionable premise. And there's also the premise that the universe is finite, is questionable. So. In the quantum gravity world, then uh, calculus just well, even Newton re- rejected that, right? Becomes so. a powerful heuristic, though. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we will get briefly to this <laughs> quantum gravity when we talk about the stadium, which is the next paradox of Zeno. That I think that's the one that I initially. I mean, the the tortoise and the hare, or the Achilles paradox, is the one that is most popular but i think the stadium is the one that has always gripped my imagination the most just because it's it's i mean the simplest of them all and it's the one i think i heard first in high school yeah no i i agree with that um you know the achilles the tortoise and the achilles is you know that yeah i would say mathematically yeah yeah it's kind of gripping it's kind of a very kind of gripping story but Mm -hmm. um the mathematical point, I think, is basically the same. Mm-hmm. So do you want to explain the stadium, or or should I, or you can? Or... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to. Okay. Um, so it's also called the dichotomy paradox, because it involves um, dividing into two. Okay, that's a good name. So that, it's also called that, it's di- based on division into two. And Zeno asks, right, how can, a, you know, imagine a runner at the beginning of a... 100 meter race um zeno would ask 
well, how can the runner actually get to the end of end of the course? Because think about their run. Um, first of all, they have to run 50 meters to get halfway. And after that, they have to run 25 meters to get half the remaining way. And after that, they have to run 12 and a half meters to get half the remaining way. And after that, six and a quarter meters and so on and forever. And so endlessly, there's an infinite number of half distances that the runner's going to have to cover before they get to the end. Um, and how could they ever compete, um, complete a an infinity of finite distances? It's clearly sort of impossible. Mm. Um, and there's different grounds in which that might be, you might think of that in, as impossible. Um, you know, one is there's no last one they have to do. So if there's no last one, how could, how could that happen? So Aristotle, I think, has a decent answer to that, that part of the problem. Namely, well, look, suppose, you know, it's a fast runner and they take, say, 10 seconds, you know, to finish the race. Well, it's fine. They got five seconds to do the first half. They got two and a half seconds to do the second part. They got a second and a quarter to do the next part. They've got, um, I don't know, whatever it is, <laughs> to do the next part. The 10 seconds it takes to do the course can also be divided in the same way. And so there is a piece of time ready to do each one. And there's no end to those um, times, but they make 10 seconds. And so it's all, it's all kind of fine. Mm-hmm. Perhaps more, but another aspect of the problem that I think Aristotle sort of neglects or glosses, um, sort of takes as being too too easy, is. But look, it's still there's a finite. I've now divided the time up into this infinity of finite pieces. Um, but surely, if I add up. You know, if I have, a, if I have a, an infinite number, you know, infinite number of finite numbers to add up, my sum keeps getting bigger every time I add another one. Mm-hmm. So won't that equal infinity? Right. So and in that fact, that ten seconds. That other paradox. Yeah, similar kind of. Yeah, yeah. So won't that, um, in fact, that ten seconds really turn out to be infinitely long? Mm-hmm. And so I have another form of the par- form of the paradox you know Aristotle's you're just assuming there's 10 seconds but once you say well there's a I can break my 10 seconds up into all these pieces and there's one for each one well now it turns out that 10 you know what you thought was 10 seconds is instead or also infinitely an infinite amount of time Um, and clearly that's now contradiction or just means the runner can't move so yeah so, I mean, I think people had the intuition, sort of even then, and certainly, you know, you know by the 17th century, people are, th- are reasoning this way. Um, you know, but look, I, I keep, when I sort of add a half to a quarter to an eighth um, to a sixteenth to a thirty-second, which is effectively what's you know being done here. It gets ever close, you know, it just keeps getting closer and closer to one, but never quite reaches there. That doesn't add up, you know, it just doesn't add up to infinity. If it's sort of 
I'm going to, you know, because I'm going to treat it as, in some sense, that sum is equal um, to one, right? But just as, you know, before when we were talking about, you know, we were talking about how can a bunch of, how can an infinity of zeros add up to a finite number, we sort of have a puzzle here as well. Addition really, as I said, requires adding two numbers together and then another one. So any actual sum is not only countable, it's actually finite. You know, addition is an op is an operation on numbers that tells you what to do when you have two, and if you know what to do, when you you know how to add up two, then you know how to add up three, and you know how to add up four, and you know how to add up five. There's no you know longest sum that you've defined now how to add up, but that doesn't mean you've add you've defined what it is to add up um, infinite an infinite an infinity of numbers. Right. I I remember from Aristotle to be a number just means to be countable. So infinity in a way isn't even a number in his in his world view. Yeah, that's probably right. So yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So So basically you, you know you like I'm saying so you start with addition and that sort of now covers when you have finite collections of numbers you want to add up. The next stage you can go to is the one from the stadium where you now have, well, a countable infinity of numbers you want to add up. There is a first one and a second one and a third one, but there's no end to that sequence. And then beyond that, there's when you have uncountably many numbers. That's when we you know, talk about integration and measure theory. For the countable infinity, what we need is a definition of what it is to add those things up. And of course, it is the intuitive idea that kind of comes from Cauchy and people learn in the, their calc or pre-calc classes that we define the sum of an infinite number of um, terms to be equal to um, the limit of the partial sums. You know, add up the first two, then add, you know, add up the next three, add up the next four. We now get a sequence of numbers. Um, the limit. If it exists, I so think that's calc two, not pre-calc. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, okay. I think uh, calc one's more derivatives, and then calc two's more integral really? calculus. Yeah. Pre-calc is just like algebra. <laughs> but you don't do like an infinite sum. Uh, maybe we do. It's been a while. I th but okay. I think I so think maybe. it was infinite series and things like that was calc two. Okay. That seems easier than that. <laughs> <laughs> calculus than infinitesimal calculus okay but yeah and so this is where i guess we would get into quantum gravity from a distance from a distance but the reason being when i first heard this paradox uh, my intuition was i guess there just can't be an infinite number of subdivisions in space the way that this paradox would have us believe that there's always you can always have all of these distance distances because to me it just didn't seem feasible that you could complete an infinite number of tasks in a finite amount of time so if you have 10 minutes to run this race and there are an infinite amount of sub intervals in this 100 meter interval then you just couldn't do it 
if there were an infinite amount of them, no matter what the math tells you is possible, because the math is just an abstraction from, from something else. And then in at some point along the line, I read this book by Brian Greene, who's a, a do you know the name? I think he's, he's yeah, a physicist yeah. at Columbia, but he writes popular, yeah, a yeah. lot of popular books. And in this book, it was, there was maybe a chapter or something on string theory. And of course, you'll correct me when I'm wrong here, but maybe some aspect of string theory. I know last time we talked, you told me there are m- multiple camps in, in string theory and in quantum gravity, but at least in one of them or somewhere, there's sort of a, a smallest uh, unit of of measure, maybe like the Planck length or something like that in space. And is that a possible solution to the paradox? Like you just you just can't stop breaking down space infinitely? Yeah. It's, I'm hesitating because I think the... <laughs> Well, if you could rephrase that, I mean, I didn't do a good job of it. No, 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 that's okay. Um, sure, let me. St- I got the question. So yeah, that would be an old. I'll give you a point where you can kind of cut from, I guess. So, so yeah, that would be another way to solve the solve the problem. Um, I guess I am hesitating a little because I'm less reluctant than you to accept. The, the solution that was provided by, you know, by the calculus. Oh, so you're less hesitant to accept that. I'm not hesitant at all. That is okay. the solution to, okay. the, to the problem. Okay. Sorry, I don't... Yeah, that, you, that was, that's, that's the solution to the sort of real-world problem or just the thought experiment problem, or both? So, if quantum gravity turns out to be right, then... Uh, then you're right. Then, then there's a different way of sort of understanding. Or we would understand things differently. But if the if space to, space and time turned out to be continuous, you know, as Newton thought and kind of people thought well into the twentieth twentieth uh, century, then I don't think Zeno ha- is raising any sort of serious problems. Then the calculus is telling us how how to resolve those difficulties, and that is the correct way to represent the world and to think about how things are happening but you're quite right so i don't see i don't see zeno as sort of motivating in that way Uh, it's not like there's some unresolved problem that we need quantum you know in zeno that we need quantum gravity uh to to resolve but you're right things would look different there would be you know space and time would be would be in some sense constituted uh according to you know a number of approaches to quantum gravity of the smallest elements of the Planck length and so any region of space or any object would ultimately in some sense be composed of however many um, Planck length sized sized objects so people come at that conclusion in different ways in different uh, in different approaches to quantum gravity uh, I think maybe you were thinking of loop, loop quantum gravity in particular has a prediction of actually of a minimum area, the Planck area, which is the Planck length squared as a sort of smallest um, region. Why would it be two-dimensional? Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's just how the mathematics kind of works. Okay. Out, so. In my mind, it would be like there would be some, I don't know, the, the, 
I guess it would depend on how many dimensions of space, or if it's not space, space, time, whatever other dimensions there are to the universe, there would just be some, like, pixel-like entity that would be, like, the small, well, not, I don't know if it would be an entity, but a space for an entity to fill that would just be uh, this smallest unit squared so the plan- cube. So if space is three-dimensional, then it would be the Planck cube. volume. Yeah, yeah. Planck volume. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the arguments, it comes out to be the, the Planck volume. And what in loop quantum gravity do do these sort of small, I guess it's areas, the Planck areas, I don't even know if it makes sense to ask what it looks like because what something looks like is probably dependent on the light reflecting off of it. So looks like isn't the right way of asking my question, but what is it like, I guess, might be the question. Does something fill it? Is it like a a pixel on a computer screen that just lights up when something passes through it? Or I'm thinking right now, I guess I took a, a class on David Lewis a long time ago, and you probably know more about this than I do, but one thing that I recall very vaguely is this idea of the Humean super mosaic, where the universe is just a bunch of different points with qualities. And what we see supervenes on the Mm -hmm. Humean super mosaic. But I guess I'm wondering what these tiny plank areas are like, if, if that question is something you can work with. Yeah, so I don't think it's it's at all like the way you're picturing it here, right? You're sort of trying to picture this as, you know, little piece, little chunk of space, and within that space, everything is the same or something. It's all red or something like yeah. that, like a mosaic. No, no, the the idea has to be that it makes no sense, sort of at all. There is no, it makes no sense to ask what it's like inside that region or what that region. Um, itself is like if you go beyond that in some sense you're probing beyond where there is any space and time mm-hmm. space is just sort of is, is granular and you sh- you're sort of trying to think of those smallest regions you know and how else can you think sort of against a background of an actually continuous space but those things make up the space so there isn't anything kind of smaller than that mm-hmm. so you sort of had the right kind of idea when you were sort of talking about what it would see because that would involve sort of um, measuring things. And that's really what it's going to come down to is nothing we can measure, none of the, you know, not to do that, physical quantities um, can be referred to anything smaller than that, than that region. So there's just nothing in the physics that is sort of sensitive uh, maybe this is the way to put it, right? There's there's no physical quantities, no measurement, but just nothing else in the universe that makes that it depends in any way, you know, on what's happening inside that region, which is a way of saying there there's you know, not only is there nothing in that region, there isn't even a region in that 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 it is not even a region, anything smaller than that. But when we conceive of motion in this picture, are we just imagining uh, some object? call it p just and p is just sort of if it's moving it let's say it is the size of the plank area uh maybe that's a premise you won't want to agree with but is it just sort of 
it blinks out of existence. And the object doesn't and, have to be small, right? We can just sort of say, where is its center of mass or something like that? Right? Sure. But is, are, is it sort of... Well, I think that this, this picture, though, makes it a little easier to see why it seems... So talking and but sort of talking crudely, and it, I'm not now pretending to say to kind of capture, you know, in a completely faithful way what loop quantum gravity would would say. But you can ask about this object. You know, where is it? Well, is it blinking out of existence? Own, your answers. Well, okay. <laughs> you know, when it moves so from one plank kind of, area to the next. So I'll answer it this way, you know, you can ask where it, you know, you can ask where it is and sort of when it is, the only answers you're going to get are, you know, with this level of granularity. So you're now kind of picturing space as a lattice. I mean, the whole thing's going to be quantum mechanical, so it's going to be more complicated than that. But if you were sort of trying to talk, think about things in, in terms of a lattice, right, so, you, you know, like... The, where the positions of a crystal, of, of the um, molecules in a crystal, something like the locations of a, of the things, then yeah, if you ever wanted to know, you know, wanted to measure or make sense of the question of where is the object, the only answers would be at one of those lattices. Well, well this is the interesting part though for me because I think we're going to get right back to Zeno, which is in this picture of motion, it's somewhat like a watching a movie in that there is the illusion of motion in that you see Brad Pitt walking across the screen but what's actually happening is we're just seeing a quick succession of still images so as our as our object is moving ac across this like quantum loop quantum tiny space it's just occupying these uh Plank volume, plank squares in one plank areas in one instant, then another set of them in the next instant, and then another set in the next instant. But this brings us to Zeno's third paradox, which is, I think, called like the paradox of the arrow, where at every single instant, this arrow is just occupying its own space, and then in the next instant, it is. Right. somewhere else so it, it's not really moving because it's at rest in every instant and that even though that was sort of my intuition for how we would how the world i guess uh is not subject to the first paradox uh, even though this was how i thought the solution would look it seems just as hard to imagine as the continuity version so right awful lot to yeah unpack yeah. there yeah awful lot first of all i'm gonna sort of flag the use of the word illusion here okay i mean in the case of the movie i mean it really is sort of appropriate to talk about an illusion because it, we're talking about a psychological you know event you mm -hmm. know out the way we how we perceive how the thing is how brad pitt is moving right um even though you're quite right, there's no kind of continuous series of um, impressions that we're getting. Um, incidentally, I think it's not clear that even when we're looking at things that are actually moving, that we're getting a continuous series of impressions. You mean physiologically? Yeah, yeah. Somehow at the neurological level, I mean, there's a continuous series of, ima of, right. sort of images forming you know, on the back of the retina. Yeah. 
uh, well, they come in individual photons, so right. not really continuous, but um, you know, there's a fastest time we can actually process motion and you know, the illusions when if things are moving, if a, a spinning wheel is spinning at the right frequency, you know, even just looked at, not just in the movie, it'll appear to actually rotate slowly, you know, backwards. Um, so, all right, but this is, sorry, I, I have kind of a, an interest in the, in motion perception, but it's kind of a sidetrack. So I'll put that to one side okay. and say illusion is that, you know, it's like that. Um, what, um, I think you're, you're getting at is not, I wouldn't sort of say an illusion, but would be. You know, why is it actually that, you know, even if something were moving discreetly, sort of fundamentally, we can actually apply the calculus in which we treat it as moving continuously and we won't go too wrong. The kind of answers that we'll get by, a pro you know, by treating it, some, the motion as continuous will be accurate enough, even though it's not really continuous. Okay, especially if we don't look closely enough, you know, we don't look, you know, we don't have anything that can resolve the granularity of the motion, why is it okay to use the calculus? Are you asking me if that's what I'm asking? I'm telling you that's what you mean by okay. illusion there, I think. Okay. Sure. <laughs> and and but so that you can maybe so you can have the opportunity to say that's not what you mean. <laughs> it's that's how I would take the question. Okay. So but let's I think at the back of that also was, you know, something you asked before. Um something about is the thing blinking out of existence in between but that but if this time is also uh, you know is, is also discrete this is not a question that kind of makes any sense because there is no you know if there's you know the object here at this time and here at this time and here at this time and there's no short you know if there's no shorter distances so that's the only places it can be but if there's also no shorter times it just doesn't make sense to ask where was it, you know, at the time in between, because there is no time in between. Mm -hmm. And that's just the whole story. That's just going to be the whole story. If time is continuous, but space is discrete, then, yeah, then it's sort of interesting. You know, what's kind of happening? Does it sort of stay at that point and then instantaneously move to the next point? Or is it there for an instant and then it's nowhere for an instant? I don't know. Then it just depends on how the physics goes. Is that helpful? So yes. there's ways of sort of thinking about it. We've got to be kind of careful that mm -hmm. you ask questions. You know, we're setting up a, a, a you know a system here, and then you have to be careful that you're asking questions that make yeah make sense within that system. Yes. So that would be kind of like that. How you would think about it. So. Um, yeah. But it's not too hard. Okay, so to go back to, um, you know, suppose space were discrete, um, you know, things are really jumping around at sort of at the Planck scale. Um, but suppose, you know, as in fact is the case, you know, when we look around, you know, the smallest thing, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what the smallest thing a human can resolve is, tenth, hundredth of a millimeter or something like that. Much, 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 you know, bigger than, than a you know, than the Planck scale. Microscope, you know, you can see things much small, you know, much smaller, an optical microscope, electron microscope, you can see things, you know, down to the sort of a atomic scale. Uh, 
effectively in a you know in, in the Large Hadron Collider and CERN, you can see things down to you know subatomic particle scale. But this is still far far larger than um, the, our ability to sort of resolve any differences is far far greater than the Planck scale. Um, you know, people do sort of back-of-the-envelope calculations to figure out how big a particle, a linear accelerator you'd have to have, um, sort of using current sort of acceleration techniques to actually probe the Planck scale to actually see effects at this scale. Then um, it's, I don't know, whatever it is, it's like the distance from the Earth to the Sun. It's an astronomical unit is how long this thing would, would have to be. All right, you know, that's just one of those, you know, how many football fields kind of things mm. to sort of say how big things are. But okay, so nothing that we see is anywhere kind of close to seeing, being able to resolve anything at the, at the Planck scale. So why not use the calculus? You know, if I've got something that was somehow jumping along through my lattice, but I can just sort of pretend that there isn't, you know, it's not a lattice, it's a continuum, and I've got something moving continuously. All I want is, you know, at any of the times, if I want to know which lattice point it's at, I'm going to just use my continuous function, and, you know, and it's going to be close enough to the, you know, the lattice points. Indeed, I'm, you know, if I use the calculus, it's going to say, oh, yeah, the arrow is at sort of 10 meters now, but, you know, I can, you know, if I can only measure that down to one millimeter, within that one millimeter, there are, you know, an astronomical number of different points. My, right. my, my, my measurement accuracy, I can't resolve the, the Planck scale, so it doesn't really matter whether I'm not telling you exactly which lattice point it's at. So... So maybe that's a way of sort of saying yes to your question once, <laughs> once I in, sort of interpret it that way, that there is a way of sort of, yeah, seeing how the calculus allows us to, um, you know, it's a sort of illusion, as it were, a stand-in for the, for the reality of... Mm. Yeah. So Planck scale physics or something so like that. Quantum gravity and string theory are oppositional right there there are two ways of trying to no no qu string theory is just a version of quantum it is gravity a version of quantum gravity so, so quantum gravity is the general idea of trying to combine gravity so general relativity theory of space and time uh, with quantum mechanics and what do things look like at this very <laughs> i already asked you that question so that's that's not what i i meant to ask what sort of things are near this scale? I mean, our, our protons are obviously far bigger than the Planck scale. Uh, so what do things break down to at that point? Is it tiny strings of some sort, or, or what is it? So, yes, yeah, um, as the name suggests, uh, yeah. So, I mean, at, le at least people... This, this is a picture that was developed around in the nineteen, you know, in the, in the 1990s. Um, and people have kind of developed other ways of thinking about string theory since then. But in this sort of string theory picture, um, yeah, there's, some of the fundamental objects are little one-dimensional um, strings. And 
because they're strings, I mean, they're like, I, I, I have a nice prop, which is a nice spring I can bring, and then I can wiggle it around, and you'll see that it, how it sort of vibrates. Um, but just imagine a, you know, a fairly st stiff spring, sort of flying around in space, and if it gets bashed, it'll have vibrations on it. Um, and the different vibrations correspond, actually, you know, correspond to the different properties of what we think of as elementary particles in high energy physics. Um, so photons, um, gravitons that carry the force of the uh, of gravity, and other sort of hypothetical elementary particles, and in more involved versions of the theory, sort of actual familiar. Um, um, elementary particles, um, but it turns out, you know. So let me talk about the, you know, the graviton, which is the quantum, is what carries the quantum force, and the photon, or if you like, if you think about gravitational waves, um, right? So photons, you know, are light particles, and so if you have enough of them, they build up into what we think of as a light wave. We know about gravitational waves, you know, people know about that. So similarly, gravitons um, a little quanta of, of gravity, and they add up to make you know, gravitational waves. But it turns out they're not two different kinds of things. They're just different ways a string might be. I see. Okay, and so on for all the other particles. They're not all actually different kinds of things. They're just strings behaving and vibrating in different ways. Um, and you might think, well, look, how can we tell that, you know, why don't we see that they're strings rather than particles? And the answer is the same. They're just way too small. So if you think about, um, you know, if... If... if, if um, yeah, you just imagine a very small kind of line. You know, if you look far enough away, it's really hard to distinguish that from just from a point. Mm -hmm. Something like that. So that's the idea of string theory. And you can see why it's a theory of quantum gravity, because it naturally, you know, that's one of the key features of string theory, is it naturally contains this particle, the graviton, which is exactly... Well, seems what you need to, um, to for a quantum theory of gravity. So everybody knows from chemistry that neutrons can be broken down into other subatomic particles. Are strings similarly decomposable, or are they, on this theory, the true like atoms of the universe? So. I mean, I guess neutrons can be broken down into into quarks, right? So, so in this version, in that version of the theory, they really are. Um, so, in one sense, there isn't some. Yeah, it isn't part of the theory that there's some different kind of constituent. On the other hand, they're dynamical things, and so you know, one string can split into two strings, or two strings can joined together to form a new string so if they're one-dimensional do they if two strings join each other do they just become twice as long in that one dimension yeah something like that i mean they are springs so they have tension so they're, okay. they're, they're changing in length it depends what's what's happening to them but yeah 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 no that'd be that yeah yeah 
So are are there? Uh, well, do you have any interest in in Zeno's other paradoxes beyond the ones that we've already spoken about? So there, there's this paradox of the moving rows, which you mentioned the arrow. That one's kind of that's kind of a nice one as well. Okay, sure. The well, moving the, rows. Yeah, the, there's moving rows, then there's the millet seed, and then there's okay. the paradox of place. But these seems to be these seem to be much less. What's the moving rows? Did I write about that? I no. Think, okay. No, I don't think you wrote about that, that or the millet seed, or the paradox of place. I think the millet seed's in the. In, it is, isn't it, in the article? So the millet seed this has to do with sounds, right? Isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah, so it's like a, a heap of millet seeds. If you drop it, it makes a sound. Yeah. So each one must make each a sound, one must but... make a sound, or each one hundred right. thousandth of a millet seed must make a sound. But we know from experience, at least uh, humoring Zeno, that if you drop. A, a little seed it's not going to make a sound yeah but do you, so did you want to talk more about that one or the arrow no it's not I, yeah, no, the, some of them really are sort of curiosities or something yeah. sure so then the the last question i guess i'll have for today is i'm, I'm more cu i'm curious just about how philosophers work because some seem to really spend a lot of time thinking. Some just spend a lot of time writing. I'm curious what, in general, your work habits are like when you're philosophizing. Like, where do your sort of ideas come from or what triggers your writing? Right. I don't know where the ideas come from. Feels like it's inside my head, I guess, but I'm not sure. Um, yeah. You know, I think like a lot of people, it sort of goes through phases. Sometimes you have to be doing a lot of reading to, um, to, to familiarize yourself and to think about a subject, keep up on the literature. Other times I tend to go through periods sort of in, of intense writing, um, where, uh, which sort of means writing two or three or four hours a day. I find I write best in, in the morning if I can sit down um, and then try to produce a lot then. Um, I find for, for me, uh, talking with people is really important. So talking to people, you know, when, talking to people about what I'm thinking about, talking to them about what they're thinking about, you know, hear, getting their feedback, getting their ideas. I find that's very important. Um, there's a lot of ideas and, and that includes people working professionally, Teaching, I think, is another form of that. So, I mean, people say this a lot. I think a lot of people find this sort of figuring out how to explain or talk to it something, you know, explain something to students can be very kind of clarifying. You really have to think in a very kind of clear way. You're really, you know, once you're sitting there imagining a room full of 20-year-olds staring at you vacantly and pulling out their phones to check their social media... You know, it, it's quite an incentive to uh, be really clear and kind of interesting and gripping about what it is you're sort of saying. And that can be very kind of actually very useful, I think, for clarifying. But conversely as well, I mean, I, there's a lot of things I can think, you know, there's where I've explained something and students have just asked sort of questions or responded in ways I really didn't predict that really made me think differently about questions and learn something. Um, so that's a, those kinds of interactions and similar interactions with 
sort of people. So I, th I think, yeah, you know, writing is good for really, I find that's really good for kind of clarifying what I'm thinking. Um, and I try to imagine having sort of interlocutors who are listening to what I'm saying and how they'll respond. But then actually giving papers, talking to people, listening to other people's ideas, that's a really kind of crucial part of the picture as well. You mentioned having, like going through periods of lots of writing intensively or reading intensively. But what does an average sort of day look like for you, philosophically speaking? Like, how much time do you spend writing or re like tomorrow? I mean, I guess tomorrow is a holiday, but for, and you're on sabbatical, so that probably changes things too. But how do you balance like the reading and the writing? It really, I, yeah, I don't. It, it really kind of varies. It's really okay. not balanced day to day. And do you ever have dedicated time where you're just like staring and thinking, or do your thoughts come out from <laughs> like free writing? So. You know, I like to, I, there are definitely periods when I am thinking. So, but often that's when I'm, I will go for, a, I, you can't really do that. I find sitting in front of a computer screen or something like that, you know, something like that. Um, you know, I, th I guess sometimes I'll sit there at a desk with my notebook if I'm really trying to think through some ideas and sort of try to sketch things out. Um, I think a lot of the thinking happens, you know, when I go for a walk go to the park, go for a bike ride, um, sitting on the bus, you know, when there's sort of uh, not other distractions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I told you I'm on sabbatical, so maybe I'll have a more of a routine of kind of work, but um, it, you know, partly it depends what needs to be done in terms of, you know, when I have to be reading, other, you know, reading to get a, up to date or when I have time for writing. Um, but, you know, working professionally, there's all kinds of teaching commitments and sort of service commitments, committees to sit on, um, papers to review, uh, conferences to organize, reports to write, evaluations of colleagues to write. And so, you know, that I find, and, and those are, that's not continuous, so that also kind of causes disruptions to to when you're when you're yeah. working um I, i'm not really complaining about that that's, right. that's part of the job and that but that's just the sort of reality of it but that's mm. why something like a sabbatical is very nice when you don't really have those distractions and you really can get into a routine of you know of getting getting work done okay great well thanks for giving me this insight into your work habits that's nice too <laughs> i just like to see how other people work see if i'm really doing everything all wrong but this has been a really nice conversation i learned a lot about xeno i it's hard for me always to absorb the heavy science uh in a conversation like this i tend to be somebody that needs to read things mm -hmm. over and over again but i'm definitely going to listen to this again uh, so thank you so much and i hope we can do a third one at some point yeah that, that would be great and thanks for yeah no the, the great and really well informed question that was really good
I have recorded this about 10 times because I'm just so bad at asking for help. But if you could like, subscribe, comment on whatever medium you're consuming this nascent fledgling podcast on, that would be so helpful because the best thing for helping me grow this podcast at this point is making it at least appear that I have an audience. So thank you for listening and thank you for supporting me.